Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. I talk about personas all the time from a customer perspective in my classes. I've never talked about a persona for your brand. We can talk about characters for your brand, but actually embodying your brand in a hypothetical or real person, I think, can provide real insights. And if you've got brand managers who need to respond on the fly and instantly via Twitter or other kind of you know fast response vehicles, having an icon that they can turn to, a person that they can imagine responding in this way is going to just facilitate brand management in really interesting ways. Understanding human behavior, understanding the interactions, as Chris was saying, being able to pull apart what is actually happening rather than talking about the speed of delivery or the price of your product or whatever else. That's where the future lies for me. Become really curious and notice conversations. Like notice the way in which people communicate and the way in which you communicate and the way in which, let's say, you know, your brand communicates about itself. And then think about whether or not if you were to have a conversation with that brand, that would be a fun conversation, an interesting conversation, or one that you would sort of be like looking for the exits, you know, away from. You know, do you go back and get that second drink or do you, you know, leave? I think like that's a really useful, just qualitative check to see if your brand is kind of moving in a direction that actually is amenable to this new world of, of social media, social interaction, and so on. This is a bit of an unusual podcast in the fact that this is a part two of an interview we did with Chris Messina, who invented the hashtag. And that's something that we've all used and continue to use. And it's had a dramatic effect on industry and so society, really, and changed the way that we communicate in, in many respects. So for those of you that haven't listened to part one of the show, then please go back and do so. For those of you that are listening to part two of the show and don't know Chris, let me just tell you a little bit about Chris before you hear the continuing conversation. So Chris has spent over 15 years working on cutting-edge technology, particularly in social technology and on developer platforms. He's worked with Google and Uber. He founded startups and changed the world with many of his creations, including, as I've just mentioned, the hashtag. He has co-founded a conversational AI company called YC18 and become a digital nomad in 2019. And now he travels the world and speaks about social technology, product design, and founder culture, along with mental fitness. In our conversation in part one, it was a fascinating conversation. We talked about many, many, many different topics. In this conversation, this continuing conversation, I know you're going to find that all of the topics are fascinating. We've wound back a a couple of minutes just so people can get into context what Chris is talking about, but I'm sure you'll find this conversation just as fascinating as you found part one. So here we go. There's a reason why there has become kind of like this cult of the entrepreneur, you know, certainly in Silicon Valley and in America and elsewhere um, in the last you know decade or so, because in many ways, 
you know, a lot of these founders, you know, whether it's like a Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk or you know, Zuckerberg and, and those folks, their organizations are very much a representation of the people who they are. And in some ways, if you are an employee of those companies, you can almost imagine like, you know, what would Zuck do or what would Elon do? How would he say this? And, you know, like Elon's tweet streams are very much, you know, kind of a representation of like Tesla's culture. And so if you can embody what your company is about or who represents your, your company, if you come up with like a persona and you yeah. develop that, right. And you collectively share that you think about, you know, how would they respond to this? How would they respond to that? And you kind of have like, not necessarily a set of litmus tests, but a set of principles that might actually help give you some insight, you know, is the response typically more curt and abrupt and kind of get to the point which might make sense. Let's say if you're like, I don't know, I want to say like Home Depot or something, it's kind of like, you know, you're getting in to get a job done. You want to be, you want to be fast, you know, Amazon sort of similarly, or are you more kind of about talking about options and colors and experience? And that's more like on, on the fashion side of things, right? So sure, I guess I feel like it's, 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 it is kind of about envisioning like a real human, like a person that personifies these things. And that, that of course can come down to content strategy, to brand strategy, and all those different things. And I think it, it really comes to the fore when you're thinking about, you know, you mentioned chatbots. A lot of the early interesting experiments in the chatbot world that I thought were pretty effective were much more narrative driven. Like you can do sort of customer service, um, which can be efficient and you can allow, the, the, the big innovation I think in chatbots is letting customers use their own language to describe the problem that they're having or what they're looking for. Because oftentimes, whatever language is in your FAQ or is you know loaded in your search terms on your website, they don't actually match to what the customer is able to describe because there's a gap in terms of the words or the language that the user has versus the way that you as a business talks about these things. And so conversation is simply a channel through which meaning is constructed in this back and forth exchange of little bites of sense. And eventually you say, mm-hmm, oh, uh-huh, or oh, I don't understand. And what we're doing is we're basically having a, a dialogue to arrive at some shared understanding. But you can't do that with a web page. You can't do that with a blog post, right? It's not interactive. So in those contexts where you have conversational interfaces, that's where you do want to allow this back and forth to happen. And that's where the character or the values kind of come forth. Because it could be the, the case where the customer service agent actually asks, like, how are you today? Like, what's going on? If you actually do talk to Apple's customer service people, they're actually quite delightful. It's pretty surprising, you know? It's very similar to going to an Apple store, and there's just, like, tons of, you know, people running around that work for the company. Whereas you go to other places, and there's nobody, and they, they lack character or personality. Can I just stop you there and just... Thank you for mentioning Apple, because it's me that normally extols the virtue of Apple on every single podcast that we do. And it's nice to have a guest on that's, I don't know if you think the same, but. <laughs> I, like, I just, I, I find it like so interesting because I went to the Apple store the other day because, you know, I have this old Thunderbolt display that doesn't turn on anymore or whatever. And I brought it in and there were just like 25 customer service reps there and maybe like 15 customers. And, you know, Apple has more money than everybody else, but still it so exceeded my expectations in terms of the level of customer care where there is an experience that's being anticipated, right? Like, it's not like who's the, or what's the minimal number of people that we can have staffed during these hours so that we have the lowest possible cost so that if anybody comes in, they might, like, for example, I went to Walgreens. I went to two or three Walgreens the other day because I needed to get a passport photo. And not only were all of the, their, their photo stations broken, and literally, like, they hadn't been fixed since <laughs> September. And they had one job. There were two staff people for, like, the entire store. And so 
you know, I couldn't talk to anybody. And there's like this one poor person who's like, you know, at the front at, you know, the checkout counter that can't leave. And then there's the pharmacy. Anyways, it was like horrible. And I'm like, this is the future that Amazon sort of is, is envisioning with their Go stores or whatever, where you walk in and you take the things and then you leave. And that's fine when everything goes well. And it's a very straightforward kind of quote unquote rational interaction. It's when you're doing something that's more complex, that's out of the ordinary, that's unusual, where your character really becomes important because it's those edges that determine what people have a good experience with you or whether they can think you're an asshole. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that's where you start getting in this sort of, if I would take a step back and, you know, you talked a bit about personas and what's the persona of the organization, but it's also about what's the persona of the customer and how can that be more situational? Because you may get a customer who wants to come in and just quickly run in and run out. But, you know, at the weekend, they may want to have a look around the Apple store or look around Walgreens or whatever else, because they've got more time and therefore it's more, I guess it's more situational then. So one of the things that, Ryan, you talk about is this obviously evolutionary psychology. And obviously, Chris, you've mentioned people have been involved in for millennia, basically. My question is around to both of you is to is to what extent do you really think that machines are going to be able to mimic human behavior or understand the complexities and the nuances of human behavior. If we went 50 years, maybe that's the case, but let's not go 50 years ahead. Well, that, uh, rather than than my answering that, let me piggyback on that because there's there's a, an idea that, that Chris has promoted before, which is I think is a really powerful one. And I'd just be interested in, in Chris, your, your kind of latest thoughts around this, which is the idea that, that the tools that we use also influence us and we adapt to them. And so I would just, along with Colin's thoughts, as these machines become more human-like, what do you anticipate our reactions going to be as humans? And how are we going to adapt with them or co-adapt with these technologies? And I'm just, what are your latest thoughts on that? Yeah, thank you. That's that's a really good, I think, reframing a little bit. And that's that's sort of a thought that was promoted by Marshall McLuhan, who was a media theorist. And it's true, you know, as we evolve our tools, of course, we also change as well. And so one of the points of my most recent TEDx talk was about imagining ourselves as a type of technology, right? We sort of tend to externalize technology as though, you know, the phones in our pockets are these things, you know, or cars in the street are things that we can just walk away from and leave them behind if we find that they're unhealthy for us or, or something like that. But it sort of ignores the fact that these devices are actually changing the very nature of human experience and human existence. They're changing the way that we communicate. They're changing our ability to be mobile. They're amplifying our own sort of organic capabilities with technological capabilities. We're augmenting our potential. And so in a very similar way, again, I think you're right. Like the problem is not, do we imagine that technology and computers, you know, through AI and machine learning are going to be better at mimicking human behavior? The question is, how will humans modify their own behavior to be more adaptable to interacting with these technologies, right? So one of the ways in which I look at this is in voice computing specifically, you know, whether it's, you know, Siri or the other voice assistant that I have in the room, and I'm not going to mention her name, <laughs> like children are becoming better at talking to those devices. I'll just use Siri because that's not going to activate anything, right? They will talk to Siri for hours on end. They will ask tons of questions. Siri never gets tired, never gets bored, never gets frustrated, whereas a parent will. And so how are children learning curiosity in a different way than we did? 
because when we asked our parents, of course, like they would get bored or whatever. Then of course we got Google and we learned how to type queries that would mostly probably return something that was necessary for us. But the problem with the responses that Google would give us is that we'd have to go click and then read the page and sort of assimilate it and then go back to the original query and maybe modify the query. And it was sort of like this back and forth, you know, hunt and peck kind of process. Whereas increasingly these voice assistants are able to one sort of keep track of a conversation or track of a topic and then allow you to continue to ask questions to evolve that. And so how will that change the nature of how children expect technology to interact and to respond to them? Whereas our generation kind of expects it to be sort of this like one step forward, one step back, kind of we're doing a lot of the manual lifting. So I think that's going to be one of the big changes that is going to cause the next generation to use technology in a more facile, more ubiquitous kind of way. And so that I think is is a major change. So it may not have to be that AI get to the place where they realistically or believably mimic human speech and human you know behavior, although I think that's coming. It's also the question of how are we changing ourselves to adapt to the technology so that we get more out of those relationships? And how are we changing our language? How are we changing our behavior? How are we getting sucked into our phones in a way that's modifying the way that we interact with humans, right? I mean, we are going through the greatest loneliness ec- epidemic, well, as far as we know. I, I don't know how long we've been recording you know, loneliness in society, but the health services have, have determined that this is like one of the major causes of depression and suicide and all these different things. And yet we're more connected than ever before. But we are connected through a very thin set of lines to other humans. And just connection alone doesn't actually say anything about the quality of those connections or those interactions. And hopefully that's where technology can actually help to bring us closer together, to give us things to do, to be like, hey, by the way, uh, screen time is maybe a, a not the best solution to this problem, but to give us some reflection on how we're interacting with these digital technologies, these artifices that then return a little bit of sovereignty to ourselves to say, actually, this is how I want to spend my time. And there may be brands that actually, you know, I think you guys had uh, a conversation about Black Friday recently on, on this podcast. And one of the things that, oh, what is it? It's a competitor to Patagonia. They have their go outside day. Anyways, there are ways for brands to basically say, you know what, like we want you to use technology to interact with us, but we also care about your you know, mental health and your mental well-being because long-term that means you're a more valuable customer and you'll be more social with your friends. You'll buy more of our stuff. And so we are actually motivated to like, yes, ask for a little more information about you to get to know you a little bit better so we can show you a greater amount of care so we can build this relationship over time. Let Beyond Philosophy help you discover what your customers really want, not what they say they want, by uncovering the hidden drivers of value in your customer experience to create real ROI. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. Similar to sort of environmental things, but from a mental health perspective. So in other words... An organization may say they're more environmental because they know that the customers want that and et cetera, et cetera. But the same from a mental health perspective. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So I'd be curious to hear, you know, from Ryan about this, right? From a developmental psychology perspective, obviously we're in this mode where we're trying to figure out what our relationship technology looks like. And yet I don't know that the opposite has really been studied that well, which is how humans actually have adapted to the technologies that we've created for ourselves and how that has changed society or shaped or reshaped society. So clearly like radio, television, telephones, now social media are doing this to us. Who's got the best read on how that interaction actually occurs? 
It's a great question. I, I feel like you and I are both asking each other the same question because we're both really interested in it. And and I don't know that anybody knows real well yet, but you can, I mean, I love the examples you gave, but you can even think of things like the, the pigeon speak we learn to interact with things like search engines. Hashtags, right? Are a great example. Right? Well, hashtags, yeah, there you go. I mean, and, and this becomes, this then then migrates over into interactions we have with other humans. My, my wife was telling me that she was uh, speaking with, with our five-year-old a couple of years ago, and he talked about doing some activity and then pausing the activity so that he could then restart something else. And he was like working in a, a workbook or something. She said, you know, she said, you, you can't pause that. But this is the way he's now framed activities in his life because that's what he does when he plays Minecraft. And so yeah, there's no undo in coloring books. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And so it affects our, our, our language. It, it affects the way that we frame activity. I mean, even, you know, I took computer science classes in college and learning to interact with a computer through code changes the way you think. I think that's one of the more valuable aspects of, of taking computer science classes, even if you don't end up programming, is it it changes your mindset and your approach to problem solving and decomposing large problems into small ones. That's a function of technology that that would be hard to replicate, even studying advanced sciences. You know, even if you study chemistry or physics, th- those are, are incredibly valuable and change the way that we think. But this technology and the way that we interact with it, it very much changes us. So I don't have a satisfying answer for you, Chris. I'm super interested in this too. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing that I'll say about this, because I think you brought up something that's just so important to help people maybe understand this, right, is that when you learn to program, you learn languages. And languages are, again, a way of communicating with this, you know, digital substrate that we have created that behaves in a very rational, very consistent way, which is unlike reality. I think this is where you're going, but there is research showing that learning other human languages changes our minds. It changes the way that we think. And even we think about things like time and color in very different ways. Bilingual people do are thinking about it in these different languages. So sorry, I interrupted you. I was just, I was excited. Keep keep going. I'm with you. Like, you know, because like there's what, like, well, supposedly 33 different ways to express snow in like Eskimo language or something. But Esther Perel, who is, you know, a great resource on all of this stuff um, in terms of just social and interactive behavior and relationships, speaks seven languages. And I believe that she has all this great depth of insight because of breadth of, of her experiences. So the last thing that I wanted to say on this, and you know, I, I probably will have the brain structure somewhat wrong, but if you imagine that most brands heretofore have largely been about just creating the basic kind of organs of, of a body to produce some regular outcome. You know, they sort of ingest materials and then they release stuff on the other end. There's both the, the byproducts and the, the, the products themselves. It's almost like very much like a biological process. And so what has happened with our cognitive evolution is that we have our prefrontal cortex, which is a relatively recent advance in biological innovation, if you will. And it's allowed us to have language, which uh, allows us to have a a pause in the direct experience of things to then interpret and then to change our behavior to do something different. And this is, I think, where we're at with brands, where through ideally some kind of mix of artificial intelligence and emotional design and relationship design and things like that, brands can start to actually show up in a way that we would prefer that they do in a way that's not simply based on industrial production, but is based on something more holistic. 
And, and that I think is like the real change and shift that's going to happen. And I, I think you're right that language and the way that we talk about these things and understand them is the key to unlocking this as an organization. The way that we talk about ourselves inside an organization is the way that we then re- represent ourselves outside into the products and experiences that we design and build. And so I think that's really where it starts by internally knowing ourselves, we can make more of a difference outside in the world when we show up. Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you for that. That is a good segue to our final bit here, which is every time we do one of these podcasts, we ask the question, so what? What does that mean that somebody should take away and do from from now? So Ryan, I don't know if you want to want to go first. What advice would you give somebody based on this conversation? This is going to sound hard to implement, but for me, take the time to take a step back from what you're doing and think deeply about why and what it is that you're trying to do. I I think we had at least 15 great insights today about thinking about a persona for your brand. You know, even that I, I talk about personas all the time from a customer perspective in my classes. I've never talked about a persona for your brand. We can talk about characters for your brand, but actually embodying your brand in a hypothetical or real person, I think can provide real insights. And if you've got brand managers who need to respond on the fly and instantly via Twitter or other kind of, you know, fast response vehicles, having an icon that they can turn to a person that they can imagine responding in this way is going to just facilitate brand management in really interesting ways. Insights like that, that Chris provided for us can be had if you take a step back away from kind of the day-to-day management perspectives that you're doing and ask yourself, you know, what is it that we want our brand to mean? What is it that we're trying to accomplish here? What are our big goals? If you can meet up with other people who are willing to geek out with you about this stuff. This was a, a tremendous amount of fun for me. It always is in getting to bat around ideas like this. So th- those are my takeaways. Take a step back, um, find some nerd friends. And Chris, what advice would you give somebody taken away from this today? I suppose there may be two things that I would think about. One, just become really curious and notice conversations. Like notice the way in which people communicate and the way in which you communicate and the way in which, let's say, you know, your brand communicates about itself. And then think about whether or not if you were to have a conversation with that brand, that would be a fun conversation, an interesting conversation, or one that you would sort of be like looking for the exits, you know, away from, you know, do you go back and get that second drink or do you, you know, leave? I think like that's a really useful, just qualitative check to see if your brand is kind of moving in a direction that actually is amenable to this new world of, of social media, social interaction, and so on. The second thing, you know, in terms of this persona idea that I think really makes this and some of my own thinking clearer is to look at this example on Instagram. And now uh, she's become, I guess, more ubiquitous. Um, her name is Michaela, and she's sort of like this virtual influencer. So she's a 3D generated avatar, but she behaves and speaks as though she's like an 18 year old Instagrammer. And it's very easy to maybe be dismissive or, you know, think, oh, like whatever, this is dumb. You know, she's got 2 million followers, big deal. But the way in which there is a team of people that are constructing this character and speaking on her behalf and connecting with people. And she's in the comments in Instagram, like, you know, having these dynamic back and forths. The only way to really scale that is to, again, have this kind of sketch of an individual and what they would say, what their values are and what motivates them. That might give you a real example of the far end of the spectrum for how far you can go with these types of personas so that you can dial it back into something that actually works for your particular context. 
Yeah, great thoughts. The final bit I would advise is I would support what Ryan was saying, which is you just need to take a step back on this stuff sometimes and just think about what's happening out there. I think that the people that are listening to this podcast, I would say this, I know I'm biased, but understanding human behavior, understanding the interactions, as Chris was saying, being able to pull apart what is actually happening rather than talking about the speed of delivery or the price of your product or whatever else. That's where the future lies for me. Again, I know I'm biased, but that's where the future lies for me. So just taking a step back and thinking about this stuff, I think is going to be really important. There was a question actually that we got after a dinner party once, which was, if you were an animal, what animal would you be? which is, you know, gets into a bit like the persona stuff. But um, there, there can be some interesting replies to that. One wife said about her husband that she thought he was a snake. Um, they're not married anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no therapist, but I could have seen that one coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd say they're not married anymore, but there you go. So, Chris, thanks very much for this. If anybody wants to get hold of you, Chris, how should they get hold of you? You know, I'm pretty easy to find um, on Twitter. I'm uh, at Chris Messina. On Instagram, I'm at Chris. And um, I have a website, chrismessina.me. Wait, your Instagram handle is Chris? Yeah. <laughs> I was the 19th user. So I was there before the 200 million showed up. Wow. All right. You know, people can claim to be early adopters, but uh... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Good. Well, thanks very much for everybody listening today. I, I, I hope you found uh, it as fascinating as uh, I know Ryan and I have. And uh, thanks for, again, Chris, for turning up. Every time I, I use a hashtag, I shall think of you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I get no royalties, but I appreciate it. I was going to say, he'd, he'd appreciate it, Colin, if you'd flip him a nickel every time. <laughs> Boy, would I. You, you really, really want to share your gratitude, Colin. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, I shall rapidly move on. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Bye bye. This has been the Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.